Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're going to talk about something that pulls in aspects from our episode on modesty, things that we've talked about before with women's fashion, and also women working in more male-dominated environments. And that is taking a look at what it's like for women in law, and particularly this aspect of dressing as a lady lawyer. Yeah, it really seems like women out there practicing law face a lot of flack that their male counterparts don't have to. And we got a letter from a woman named Bonnie who was actually responding to another listener letter we had read on an episode that addressed the whole issue of female attorney fashion struggles. And Bonnie said that, you know, I would love it if you did a podcast on this topic. And she said, I'm sure we share a lot of struggles with other professionals and women working in a typically male environment. Not only are there the typical struggles like work-life balance and making partner, but there are also things I encountered that I never imagined would happen. For one, I've been asked if I was a client, a secretary, or a court reporter on multiple occasions. It's rarely assumed by default that you're the lawyer unless you're standing behind the counsel table by yourself. One time, a witness actually pointed at me during a deposition and asked, who's the girl? She says, believe it or not, I've even been touched in mildly inappropriate ways by male attorneys and even a judge. This wasn't at some cocktail party either. This was during court conferences where you'd think nothing like that would ever occur. I knew I would encounter misogyny in my career, but both these instances were totally unexpected. So, Bonnie, and to all of our other listeners out there working in and around the legal profession, this episode is for you, and I hope the rest of you guys can also learn a thing or two about just the weird kind of double standards that go on in a courtroom. Yeah, because I have a feeling that this is, a lot of this will be reflective of a lot of women's experiences, just in terms of that question of how to dress in a professional Manner. Yeah. So when it comes to courtroom fashions, it's always come with specific decorum and rules for how you should dress. So if we look, for instance, over to England, the uh, traditional attire for judges is just one maybe more extreme example. Yeah, it's there are some fabulous, fabulous fashion rules for 17th century judges in England. They had to wear long robes complete with ermine and taffeta or silk, a full hood with a cowl covering their shoulders and a cloak. And ladies and gentlemen, there were colors. Their robes were green in summer and violet in winter. But all of this fabulous fashion just meant that they sartorially fit in with everybody else who was attending the royal court at the time. For instance, those white powdered wigs that we associate with this period and with English lawyers was just what was considered polite to wear out in society. So it was incorporated into court dress as well. And in 1635, we see possibly the first court dress code, which was the definitive guide for judges on what to wear in the courtroom. It basically told them what robes to wear, when and how. 
Now, once we get into the mid-18th century, rules have changed just a little bit. So during criminal trials, a less formal version of the robes was used. This would be a scarlet robe, black scarf, and scarlet casting hood, also known as a tippet or stole. And then in civil trials, some judges had had begun to wear an all-black silk gown and then gray taffeta, in the mid-18th century, was becoming increasingly popular as an alternative to the pink taffeta used on summer robes. So I love this. I love that there are such, like, strongly delineated rules for what these male judges were wearing and how and when to wear pink. And violet. Pink and purple. Yeah, exactly. And there are so many more fashion do's and don'ts for these male judges that we could get into. But, you know, we have a show to run. So if we move over to America, this is coming from uh, an essay written by former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who's providing us historical insights about this side of the pond. And she talks about how those colorful robe traditions and ornate wigs, they never really took off here. And the theory is that Thomas Jefferson himself opposed the unnecessary pomp and, quote, needless official apparel, especially the monstrous wig, which makes the English judges look like rats peeping through bushes of oakum. And I had no idea what oakum meant. Apparently, it's a loose fiber from untangled rope that was especially used for caulking wooden ships. So there you go. And something that apparently you just don't want to look like. It's a sick burn from Jefferson. <laughs> yeah, he's, he was always dropping those those sick oakum burns. Um, but she talks about, O'Connor does, about the portrait of the first Chief Justice, John Jay, that shows him wearing a black and red robe with white borders. But... By 1801, when John Marshall became Chief Justice, it was all black for the justices. But that's all tradition. There are no written rules about what judges must wear, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Although there have been a couple exceptions. For instance, O'Connor talks about how she began wearing a white collar, Mm -hmm. which sort of stepped out of the uh, all black uh, unspoken rules. But more significantly, former Chief Justice Rehnquist had gold bands sewn onto his robe after he saw it in an opera. I believe, like, involved a, a judge figure, and he liked it so much, he had it sewn on to his. I mean, and, you know, if you're going to be Chief Justice, why not add a little flair no, to I, your robe? I imagine that's striking. My father is a former pilot, and so he had the gold bands on his black uniform as well. Well, and we've talked, too, about how Ruth Bader Ginsburg has her special jabots that yeah. she wears for different occasions. But men don't wear those fancy collars, and we are definitely here to talk about those gender divisions. That's right. Caroline, things aren't so black and white, though, when it comes to people appearing before judges, especially women. And this is coming from a gallery over at The Cut uh, with New York Magazine from 2013. And they wrote, historically, the courtroom wardrobes of high-profile people have carried meaning as well. Right. So if we go back in time, and I might this might seem like a very strange jump all of a sudden, but if we go back to Joan of Arc. So she had a ton of trials because, you know, she was uh, accused of being a heretic for hearing voices. So at the end of one of her many trials, she promised, hey, I am going to stop hearing the voices, you guys, and 
just to throw in there something extra, I'm also going to stop wearing male clothing. Of course, she started wearing it again while she was in prison, possibly to avoid sexual assault, and she claimed that it was more lawful and convenient. Shortly thereafter, Joan was judged to be a relapsed heretic and was executed. And so, as you can tell, we're definitely getting into what your clothes say about you when you appear in the courtroom. Well, clearly Marie Antoinette thought a lot about that because during her imprisonment, she wore a black morning gown for six months straight in defiance of a ban on black, which at that time symbolized sympathy for the monarchy. And when she was later tried on an array of charges, including a vindictive glance, yikes, France, Whoa, that rhymed. She came to the courtroom in a tattered dress, which caused one guard to note, quote, her long black dress rendered her extraordinary pallor all the more striking. And clearly she was trying to engender sympathy. Um, but, of course, that didn't really work because she was executed. But for her execution, she wore a pristine white dress. Yeah, and she accessorized to match. This lady knew what she was doing. I mean, it it didn't work. It kind of backfired a little bit. she looked fabulous. And then if we jump forward to uh, modern times, we have to point out Martha Stewart, who was roundly criticized for wearing clothes that drew attention to her wealth. Things like fancy fur stoles, Birkin bags. People were basically saying, like, what are you doing flaunting how much money you have, rich lady? Uh, Martha's being Martha. And Martha will always do Martha. Martha's doing Martha. Uh, but that brings us to today. What about, I mean, we talked about women in front of the court bench. What about the lawyers, the people responsible for pleading their clients' cases? Obviously, male or female, lawyers are expected to dress professionally in court because you want to be taken seriously and yet not distracting or give the jury the wrong impression because you're representing your client. Yeah, but the whole thing is that nobody needs to be a jerk about it. In preparing for this episode, I was so taken aback at how shamey people could be, specifically women, let alone men, when it comes to advising women attorneys how to dress and how contradictory so much of that advice is. Yeah, it's never really been easy for women lawyers to dress themselves for court because for men, they have a uniform. It's a suit and a tie, whereas women have more options, perhaps. But they're kind of penalized no matter what, because and I found this surprising. You wear a pantsuit and you're considered too masculine. But sometimes if you wear the wrong skirt and heels, you're considered too feminine. And when this conversation really started getting off the ground in the 1970s and 80s, women tried to play it safe by adopting male styles. So we would wear skirt suits with hems below the kneecap and button-down shirts and even these floppy bow ties, because we needed ties too, apparently. But we would often accessorize with pearls or ruffles to have as... uh and Farmer writing for the American Bar Association's Perspectives magazine to have feminine apologetic disclaimers, which actually is a term coined by sociologist Jan Felschen. So we would be kind of emulating men in the basic styles, but also offering those touches to say, oh, still a woman here. Don't worry. 
Right. I mean, that's totally a fine line that women were walking and they were emulating men because who else were they going to emulate? You know, there it wasn't like in the 80s and even now there were a ton of women in higher up legal positions. Uh, it definitely is and was a male dominated profession. And so Farmer points out that in the 80s, women finally did find an ounce of inspiration in the form of L.A. law character Grace Van Owen, who wore silk V-neck blouses. And she talked to a farmer, talked to a judge who is discussing how women in the 80s just like ran out and everybody had this silk V-neck blouse because like, well, they did it with her on TV and it looks nice. You didn't have to have rock the floppy. Floppy bow tie anymore. So working girl. Although, I mean, I like a floppy bow tie every now and then. (laughs) I'll admit it. Um, But even today, things have not gotten any easier since the 80s for women in law school and practicing law. For instance, in 2009, at a Seventh Circuit Bar Association meeting, a panel of judges and lawyers complained about women's attire. We have Chief Judge Michael P. McCuskey of the U.S. District Court for the Central District of Illinois. <gasps> How does he fit all that on a business card? Uh, he said that he'd observed female participants at moot court competitions in law school wearing, quote, skirts so short, there's no way they can sit down, and blouses so short, there's no way the judges wouldn't look. Because, you know, we've mentioned that, yeah, there are fewer female lawyers practicing a lot of times, but by far, if you're standing before a judge, you have a really good chance, an even better chance, that he is a man. Right, and I think that quote sums up attitudes about women and and their attire so well, because, so the first part, the skirt's so short, there's no way that they can sit down. That's like a blaming blaming the woman who's wearing the attire, and then blouse is so short, there's no way the judges wouldn't look. That's admitting that there's a bunch of pervy old men sitting in the courtroom. But in response to this, Judge A. Benjamin Golger of the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Northern District of Illinois said that women lawyers dressing too sexily is, quote, a huge problem. You don't dress in court as if it's Saturday night and you're going out to a party. <sighs> yeah, I mean, the true You want to dress professionally, but let's not single out women, okay? And he didn't. He he was actually equally unhappy with men (laughs) wearing loud graphic ties. But this is not where this kind of fashion scrutiny stops because I mean I don't know if you guys knew it, but judges are apparently closet fashionistas. (laughs) Similarly, in 2010, although this wasn't so judge heavy, nonetheless. The Chicago Bar Association's Young Lawyers section held a what-not-to-wear fashion show that brought judges, law professors, and law students all together to critique mostly female courtroom fashions on a runway, um, which the very fact that that happened attracted a lot of media attention. I feel like almost every article that we read on this topic, Caroline, highlighted this this uh, Chicago Bar Association Meeting. Well, yeah, because I think there wasn't like, you know, media coverage, so to speak, of this event. But there were there were two bloggers in particular who were present. And one was like, yeah, you tell them. And the other one was like, seriously. So she she laid out the rules as she had interpreted them, which was basically like, there's nothing that you can wear and get away with. Like, 
you're darned if you do, darned if you don't. Well, and it probably also ties into things that we've talked about, particularly in the modesty episode on not only is there that fine line, but it probably gets even finer depending on your body type. Mm-hmm. All sorts of factors going into that. Um, in June 2013, though, it's worth noting that in Tennessee, Circuit Judge Royce Taylor got so fed up with complaints from other attorneys about courtroom dress, particularly among women, that he set a dress code in his courtroom for female attorneys. And uh, we will say that he also found a male attorney in contempt for not wearing a blazer. Um, But his reasoning for this was that your personal appearance in court is a reflection upon the entire legal profession. Okay, Mm -hmm. totally valid. Um, And Nashville attorney Carla Miller's response to this was definitely on Taylor's side. She said that some ladies are dressing in a manner that should be bothersome to other lady lawyers who strive to be professional. And she breaks it down. Y'all, Carla gets Carla gets serious. She says, here's the thing. We girls, we like making fashion statements. It's about individualism. Maybe the courtroom is not a place to show your individualism via fashion. Now, I'm just assuming that Miller is also from Tennessee, and so I affected a Tennessee accent. Perfect. And, you know, all of these things, they have points to them as far as dressing professionally. But And, and I'm going to keep saying that, but I'm also going to keep saying that it's it's just kind of icky, though, when it comes to the focus on women. But all of this extends, this these expectations, these rules... They all extend back to before you're even in the courtroom when you're just a law student. In March 2014, Loyola Law School sent a memo to students about appropriate behavior for their externships that included a special note for women, which said, I really don't need to mention that cleavage and stiletto heels are not appropriate office wear outside of ridiculous lawyer TV shows, do I? Yet I'm getting complaints from supervisors. And it's important to note uh, that there were no fashion guidelines in this memo for men. And and I think, you know, the content of that message is bad enough. Do you really need to be snarky? I feel like there was that was snark laden. Well, all of these are just various examples of how there really isn't an established way for women to dress because It's going to vary from judge to judge because going into this episode, I assumed that, okay, the the proper and safest way for a a female lawyer to dress in front of a judge is to just wear a pantsuit. Yeah, I would have assumed that as well. You wear a modest button down, blazer, Mm -hmm. pantsuit, done. But no, because there are also judges who do not like pantsuits on women because they find them too masculinizing. And in fact, this kind of blew my mind. A lot of law clerks will get word out to female attorneys before a case or before a trial starts to let them know how judges prefer that they dress, not in the gross sense of the term, but in terms of courtroom decorum. Mm -hmm. But I had no idea that courtroom decorum would be that specific to how women dress. I mean, this does also apply to some men. I mean, we've mentioned the guy who held a male attorney in contempt of court for not wearing a blazer, for instance. Um, However, it's still, I mean, for men, yeah, wear a pantsuit and you'll be safe. 
but not so much for women. Right. It's very strange that there's no advice to men out there to, hey, kind of kind of feel out the courtroom environment and see what is safe for you to wear. Right. But that's the bulk of advice to women attorneys. And Anna Akbari, who's a New York University professor who touts herself as a sociologist, entrepreneur and the thinking person stylist, had a lot to say for women attorneys about how to dress she says, if you're going to wear a suit, a skirt suit registers better than a pantsuit. In male-dominated fields like law, skirts and dresses are particularly rewarded as they are more appealing to men. In interview situations in particular, women should always wear a skirt or dress as it is heavily favored over pants by interviewers, many of whom are men. And at this point, I flipped my laptop over, destroyed it, it caught on fire, and I've since bought a new one. Uh, that was my response to Akbari. Well, and it, if you do toss on a skirt or a dress and heels, there are even further rules for that of, well, what's the proper length? What about the bust line? How much arm can I show? Uh, how much color can I wear? There are even rules about how um, women lawyers want to should avoid wearing high heels with red soles because that will draw too much attention or avoid wearing too bright of colors, never wear pink, all these things be feminine, but not too feminine. Um, but going to Akbari's supposed point of how a little more feminine, sexy attire is appreciated. Judge Richard Kopp caught a lot of flack mm-hmm. in March on his blog when I forget. I, I don't remember what this was in response to, but he wrote a post about how there was he. He thank God left her anonymous. A quote: "Very pretty female lawyer um, in her late twenties who's brilliant, but also tends to wear, as he calls it, very short skirts and shows lots of her ample chest. And how he especially appreciates the last two attributes." And those are direct quotes. And he goes on to talk about how female law clerks sneered at this woman behind her back and called her unprofessional and did directly like get slut shamey with her for this. And so his conclusion for women lawyers in considering how to dress is, well, you can't win. Quote, men are both pigs and prudes. Get over it. So that, uh, um, Women listening, if you're in law school, what a challenge. (laughs) What a challenge. Yeah, and a lot of the flack that he received was not only for just being gross, because he admits in that blog post that he's a dirty old man, which is... He's probably, he, he would say, if he were sitting in this studio right now, he would say that was clearly a joke. I right. guarantee you. No, well, in his response, he did post a response. He apologized for it. And he basically said that he tried and failed to use edgy humor. And as someone who enjoys reading and writing, uh, I say that humor is very tricky. You're right. Uh, just try not to use it if you're not very good at it. Maybe stick to your day job, judge. Yeah, oh, yeah. Hey, oh, I know. Yeah, stick to being a judge. And a lot of people responded to his really gross blog by saying, um, this is embarrassing for you and for me, for the fact that you're a judge. So the question, though, is why? Why are there, I mean, why, why does this tightrope even exist? Um, so... There are all sorts of theories as to why this happens. Of course, 
we could circle around to evolutionary biology. Um, there was a study published in the journal Aggressive Behavior in 2011 called The Intolerance of Sexy Peers. And th- it really focuses on women being judgmental toward how other women dress, such as the case of those women law clerks mm-hmm. throwing shade at the lady lawyer. Um, the study would say that this was really these women, these law clerks acting in a sexually protective manner, or I should say a sexually self-protective manner, because the idea, according to this study, is that women get judgy against other women who we think are dressing too provocatively because we consider them a sexual threat. Although I really doubt that that's happening in a courtroom. Yeah, well, you know, people probably tend not to bring their boyfriends or husbands to the courtroom, and so they probably don't have to be worried about anyone getting stolen because a lady lawyer is wearing a blouse. Tip to single ladies listening. (laughs) If you're looking to meet a man, sign up for jury duty ASAP. Um, so another theory, another conversation that's happening about why there are so many perceived or anecdotal problems with what women attorneys are wearing has to do with this need to control women. And this is coming from Valerie LaRue. She was writing in Miss JD back in June 2014. And she says that it's not just men. Women will do the policing of other women for men. And she says that basically, you know, our culture still judges women, even the most powerful women like Hillary Clinton, by a completely different standard, one inferior to men. And she goes on to give other non-clothing examples. But it's basically that idea of, you know, where are all the rules for men? Like, yes, wear a suit, wear a nice tie, don't be too flashy, all that stuff. But why? Why? There are so many there are so many websites out there and blogs and whatever dedicated to telling women what to wear and how they're failing and looking skanky or whatever. Don't let your tramp stamp show was part of that Chicago fashion show. Um, and it's part of this whole thing of like, oh, well, we're nervous, maybe subconsciously about women being in such a male dominated field. Well, and Jill Filipovic, who is a litigator turned journalist um, who focuses a lot on sexism and feminism has said that it, quote, gives sexist men and women, because remember, this is not just something perpetuated by men. Women are also doing this to women. Mm -hmm. It gives sexist men and women the ability to discriminate both in hiring and giving projects to brand female attorneys based on appropriateness, which too often correlates to perceived social class of which race also factors in and to body type. I mean, all of this just traces back to policing women's bodies and also this whole thing of law in particular being very much a male domain. I mean, at the top of the podcast, when we were talking about judges fashions, it was exclusive to men because they were the only judges there. And only now are we even starting to see more of uh, something akin to gender parity in the courtroom. Yeah, and we're going to talk more about this gender divide with fashion when we come right back from a quick break. So when we left off, I had mentioned that at the top of the podcast, we were talking about those British judges, that it was all men. Um, There was a source that we found talking about how today in Britain, their courtroom... Uh, decorum of wearing the robes and wigs 
might seem silly or old fashioned, but it's a lot easier to follow than these rules stateside because, quote, at least you can wear basically anything you want under the robe and still look just like your male colleagues. No one would mistake you, as in the case of the the stuff I never told you listener we heard from. No one would mistake you for a court reporter or paralegal. Yeah. So those rules, those dress codes that involve wearing robes could actually be pretty Pretty beneficial, especially in a male-dominated courtroom. Or if just hanging out in your house. Robes for all. Anyone who keeps up with celebrity news lately would probably know what we're talking about, if you're not already, you know, living in England, would be really familiar with this whole wig thing because the woman that George Clooney just married, who is a lawyer in England. She's a barrister. She is. She had her picture circulating in the media with her tiny little white wig on. Ah, yeah. So it's it's a thing and women do it, too. And it, you know, it's it's got to make things easier. It has to. One would think. I mean, except, yeah. Well, never mind. How to solve sexism in the courtroom. Wigs and robes. Done. End of podcast. Perfect. Well, so part of this whole issue, you know, we've talked about the male dominated stuff a bunch and the fact that women lack role models. And Amanda Hess talked about this over at Slate. Talking about how many law firms still lack female partners who can kind of show the rookies how it's done. She says that only 4% of the top 200 law firms in the U.S. have female managing partners. And so following the advice on the website Corporate, run by attorney Kat Griffin, can really prove to be a bummer because Griffin's advice is to play it safe, ladies, until you see a senior lawyer do it. But the whole problem is that statistically, there just aren't a whole lot of women partners and judges out there to look to for your fashion guidelines. However, there are plenty of women in law school. Um, I mean, if we just look at law firms, it's kind of astounding to compare those statistics to statistics of the numbers of women in law school because it's fairly equal. There are just slightly fewer women pursuing their JDs in the U.S. as there are men. Um, and these stats are coming from a Catalyst report from 2013. And it talked about how law firms in particular might not have as many women among their ranks because they're very much set up around a male model because they don't have family-friendly environments. I mean, law is notorious for its long hours, particularly if you're in a private practice where billable hours rule the day. And so you make your money and get the attention by putting in those long days. It's a lot of tedious work. If a client calls, you have to, you know, be able to pick up and respond And it talks about how motherhood stirs up a benevolent paternalism as well. And so it creates a drain because even though there are lots of women in law school, they start to siphon off the higher up you climb. Right. And so Deborah Epstein Henry, who's the who's an author and former lawyer, talks about what we need to kind of help with this, both in the what do I wear arena as well as in the how do I progress in my career arena. She says that until you have 30 percent representation of women on influential committees and boards, a critical mass, she says, women are not comfortable voicing their opinions. And this also applies to taking chances and all sorts of things, all the way down to what they wear in court. And so let's take a deeper dive into some of the numbers. So as opposed to the just over 47 percent 
of women who make up JD students just in the United States, according to the American Bar Association. Women, as of 2012, make up only 33% of the legal profession. And if you look just at lawyers, you also see the pipeline start to thin. So when it comes to summer associates, probably fresh out of uh, law school, 47.7% of them are women. And then 45% are uh, are associates, excuse me, and then 31% are full-blown lawyers. But of course, when we move from being a lawyer to being a partner, even fewer women in there. That's right. In 2011, women made up just 19.5% of partners and 11% of the largest U.S. law firms had no women on their governing committees. Women did appear, however, to be more successful in single tier firms where promotion rates for them as equity partners was strongest. And basically an equity partner is a part owner of the business. <laughs> but one little fact about uh, women equity partners and law firms, they do on average make about uh, 86% of what their male equity partners make. So the wage gap still exists even at that top tier. Uh, moving out of law firms, though, and looking at general counsels at Fortune 500 companies, women comprise about 18.8% of those lawyers. And I just mentioned a wage gap. Yes, in fact, it exists for lawyers as well. Women lawyers are making about 20% less than male lawyers as of 2012. And so in terms of numbers for lawyers, it's even worse for women of color. Women of color make up just 11% of associates, 2% of partners, and there are only 15 general counsels who are women of color in Fortune 500 companies. And if we bring it full circle and get back to talking about judges and look at the courts in 2011, 23% of all federal judgeships were held by women and just 27% of state judgeships were held by women. So I do wonder then what whether this conversation would be happening at least as much if there were more women behind the bench. Because regardless of what the gender makeup is in a courtroom, there will still and always be rules of decorum, as I think there should be. Mm -hmm. But it seems like something needs to happen in terms of making these fashion rules not so much a, a part of the daily grind of being a woman lawyer, because shouldn't they be focusing more of their attention and concerns on, oh, I don't know, the actual law and cases? It seems like a lot of energy is possibly being diverted into these other kinds of things. Yeah, as my therapist would say, interesting. You're you're showing a lot of energy around this topic. I wonder why that is. And I do think that a lot of it has to do with there is still, even after all of this time, there is still so much like shaming going on, like making almost trying to make women feel unwelcome in the courtroom. And so putting the focus on their appearance rather than their actual deeds. Well, and I think, too, that this is we could have this same conversation just about, again, about women dressing professionally, period, Mm -hmm. because it started off in the 80s. Yeah, where women were essentially like, okay, well, we could just wear this slightly more feminine version of the men's uniform. Mm -hmm. But then we're like, no, we we want to wear what we want to wear. So let's wear 
skirts. Let's accessorize. Let's wear our flouncy bows or not. So I, I think that this is probably an issue that a lot of women confront and probably a big thing for women in college, too, of figuring out how to transition their fashion into the professional world, whether they are heading toward a law firm or not. Mm-hmm. So I'm really curious to hear from our listeners on this one. Are there any law students or women lawyers listening to where this really rings a bell? And is this actually a problem? Because that is one thing. A lot of these, you know, the memos and these uh, these fashion shows really seem to frame this as something that far too many female lawyers are violating, that we're just dressing like we're going to the club. What is this club also <laughs> that everyone is apparently always going to? Yeah, I mean, is it so much an issue of a, a large number of women dressing inappropriately or is it just... You know, as we talked about, some quote unquote self-described dirty old men, judges uh, jumping to conclusions and judgy women judging, jumping to conclusions. So many, so much judging, much judging. Well, because think about it, too. I mean, the role that women play, possibly not only just slut shaming behind some lawyers backs, but also doing if they're a law clerk for a judge doing the message delivery to female lawyers to let them know. I mean, on the one hand, you could say they're doing them a solid, but on the other hand, they're perpetuating all the stuff we're talking about, too. Yeah. So, lawyers. <laughs> we need a lawyer up. Uh, we'd like to hear from you. And other women who have encountered this, too, in their professional goings-on. Let us know your thoughts. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can reach us. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. Or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I have a letter here from Clara in response to our Mama's Boys and Daddy's Girls series. Uh, she says, my boyfriend of five years is one of three sons who I believe make an interesting case study on the developmental effects of having a closer relationship with a mother versus a father during formative years. My boyfriend is 26 with an older and younger brother, all about two years apart. As the boys were entering adolescence, their then-married parents decided to move across country to Montana for a career move for their dad. Soon after the move, my boyfriend's parents made the decision to divorce, with the result being that my boyfriend's older brother would stay temporarily with their dad in Montana, while my boyfriend and his younger brother moved back to the Midwest with their mom. This temporary fix turned into a year-long situation, and the after-effects of this dynamic resonate to this day. While I love all my boyfriend's family, his older brother is admittedly anxious, socially awkward, and has had continual struggles developing and maintaining strong relationships with women. Alternatively, my boyfriend and his younger brother have much more emotionally sensitive demeanors and are much more socially fluent than their oldest sibling. I've always just taken this dynamic at face value, but listening to your podcast really got me thinking about why there is such a stark contrast in the personalities of three otherwise incredibly similar brothers. Granted, all behavior is circumstantial, but I think that building a stronger relationship with their mom versus their dad in the formative years of early adolescence had a profoundly positive impact on my boyfriend and his little brother. Love the podcast. You ladies keep on being fabulous. And you keep on being fabulous too, Clara. Thanks for writing in. 
Well, I've got a letter here from Kate, and it's in response to an episode we did quite a while back on girls' fascinations with horses. And I loved it so much, I had to read it. So Kate works on a ranch managing a tiny little herd. She says, I trim hooves, train a baby and a four-year-old, and generally keep this nine-horse herd in all-around good health. And she talks about the two kinds of women in the horse world. The one kind of woman uses horses essentially as a status symbol. And then she says, there are horse girls like myself and others I know. We trim our own horses' hooves, doctor their gaping gashes, clean the parts of them we'd rather not, ride them until our butts are sore or they get the point of the lesson, whichever comes first, throw thousands of pounds of hay in tiny little enclosed barns, choking on random hay bits that get lodged in our throats when the wind kicks up. But most of all, when we fall, we get back on instead of handing our horse off for someone else to fix Girls like myself have cut our hands with hoof knives, but finish the job because your horse can't very well walk around on three trimmed hooves because of a little blood. Girls like me get bucked so hard we wear these nasty black bruises between our thighs for a month because we rode the buck and refused to stop wearing our pretty skirts. Girls like me get thrown around over our horses' heads, smack into a light pole, upside down, face first, and still finish the lesson. Girls like me are badass, just saying. It's more than riding a big, pretty animal. It's real, true, blue, unconditional love. If you screw up, they forgive you without strings. If they screw up, you have to learn how to forgive them. No strings. You have to learn open communication. If you can't openly communicate, you'll get hurt badly. And she goes on to say, You learn what a truly happy human relationship can and should be when you apply to what you've learned from your horse relationships. You start learning what trust, honesty, and love feels like instead of what others make it sound like. So that's the basis of my fascination with horses for what it's worth. So thanks so much, Kate, for that insight, especially with hoof knives. I didn't know a hoof knife existed, <laughs> so thanks. And anyone else who'd like to write to us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one, which has links to all of our sources so you can read along with us, you can find it all at stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.